Lesson number eight, giving in the epistles. So we've covered Old Testament for six weeks. Then we got into the Gospels. Last week we covered giving in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles is the only history book of the New Testament. We can build doctrine from the Acts of the Apostles, but it is quali- or called and considered a book of history. And then we get into the epistles, which are the actual letters that Paul and the Apostles wrote. So now we systematically move through the Bible And looking at tithes and offerings, we come to the epistles. So this will cover almost every scripture we can find in the New Testament. Almost every, not every, but almost every scripture we can find on giving. So we look at large passages here. So there's a lot to read, but more things to uncover. So let's get into our lesson here. It's important to remember uh, that New Testament doctrine is established upon Old Testament, uh, upon the Old Testament. That is something you have got to know as a Christian. Uh, My job as a pastor is to make sure you don't just come and warm a chair, but that you actually understand doctrine and you can expound it to other people. If you can't expound what you're learning to other people, you're not learning. You're just listening, and that not very well. So I don't want you just to be full of Bible knowledge. I want you to be able to understand concepts and precepts so you can defend your faith. We're watching the great falling away, and folks that uh, we might be considering Christians today, a year from now, may be mocking your faith, though they once served with you. You've got to be able to defend your faith. So remember that Old Testament doctrine is the foundation upon which New Testament doctrine is built. The New Testament directly quotes the Old Testament 695 times. That's a lot of direct quotes. 695 quotes taken from the Old Testament. And it directly references the Old Testament 4,100 times. That's a lot of references 4,100 references to the Old Testament. We should expect the New Testament to then reiterate the Old Testament's established giving doctrines. If there's that much quotation, if there's that much of a foundation in the Old Testament, then when we start seeing New Testament giving referenced, we ought to see the reiteration of what we've already covered from looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through. It shouldn't come as a surprise that we're doing the same thing in the New Testament. And that's exactly what we're going to see. Remember, the primary use of the Old Testament tithe and offering was to support the Levite and establish God's covenant. We saw that over and over again through about five different lessons. The primary use, now the primary purpose was to honor God, but once you honored God with the gift, there was a use. So once you honored God with the tithe and honored God with the offering, the use then went to supply the needs of the entire Levitical tribe and then to also advance God's covenant, whether it was building the tabernacle or building the temple or taking up an offering for this or establishing that. So let's look into this, our first couple scriptures. Uh, this section, I call it the New Testament giving supports the gospel worker. And that's what we're going to see over and over again. New Testament giving is designed to supply the needs of the gospel worker. Romans 16, that's the very first time we see giving referenced to support a gospel worker. It's the very first time you see giving in the epistles. And Paul said, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. This in the sense is a letter of commendation, the last part of Romans. It's where the New Testament churches get the the practice of letters of commendation or letters of uh, membership. I believe in that heavily. We don't always do it with a literal letter, but we do it with phone calls. Uh, Me and the pastors I know in this town, when we have sheep transfer, we do a lot of phone calling. And we get phone calls of commendation or phone calls of damnation. We do condemn people. I don't damn them to hell, but we say, no, you don't want this sheep. I'm glad they left me. I hope they can find a church, but I love you. Don't let it be your church because they will cause trouble for you. Here we see a letter of commendation. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. 
What a high honor for the Apostle Paul to say, this is a woman you can trust. This is a woman you need to honor. This is a woman you need to receive. Not every Christian deserves letters of commendation. Not every Christian has earned letters of commendation. That might be a good pastoral point here. Stop and think about yourself. If, if, if your fellow sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, or your pastor were to write a letter about you, if you were to transfer churches, what would it include? What's your own testimony? Is it that you pout? Is it that you get your feelings hurt and don't come to church for weeks at a time? Is it that you're a tithe thief? Is it that you're faithful? Is it that you're joyful? Is it that you help the church? What kind of letter of commendation does your life write? It's a good question. And then what are you doing to constantly edit that every day? <laughs> Amen. Who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. That is a big endorsement. Not just, here's a wonderful sister, she's a wonderful servant. She's such a powerful servant, Paul says, finance her and give her whatever she needs. That's a blank check. He just authorized an entire church. You guys come together and whatever she has need, take care of. If it's a house, if it's a boat ticket somewhere, if it's she's checking on her mother because she's from Sincrea, she's traveled to Rome, she's taking the Roman epistle, whatever she has need of while she's there, take care of it for her. That was inspired by the Holy Ghost based on the life, testimony, and servitude of Phoebe. Not every Christian deserves that. Not every Christian will ever get that. You should try to be like Phoebe, especially if you're a lady. The Bible calls it the, the Greek word diakonis there in the Greek for her says she's a deaconess. I believe in female deacons. Some, some of my preacher friends don't. But this, then the Greek says she's a deaconess. She's a servant over the entire church of Sincrea. She may have been the only one they had, the only deacon, because everybody else was lazy. She earned a tremendous letter of commendation. She, she earned the right to deliver the Roman epistle. Think about that. There was nobody else in Sincrea Paul could trust to deliver the Roman epistle, so he gives it to a woman. Where are all the men? So God uses both men and women. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. So she was a tremendous helper to Paul. Phoebe was the deaconess of the Sincrean church. She delivered the Roman epistle to the church at Rome. And Paul commanded the Roman church to care for her in whatever way she required. She had earned this honor as a gospel minister. Again, what kind of lifestyle is, your, is, is writing? What kind of letter is your lifestyle writing? You're always adding something else to your spiritual resume when you get ready to move or the Lord transfers you or, or what have you. I actually get used on a lot of resumes around here. A lot of folks will say, Pastor, can I use you as a, a reference? Absolutely. I talk to a lot of employers. That's another letter of recommendation. I've written lots of letters of recommendation for grad school and, and even college. And uh, even our young people are writing a letter that I get to either sign off on or I start trying to make up polite ways of saying... Mm, glad they're saved. I've known them their whole life and I'm glad they're saved. And given the opportunity, I'm sure they can do good. I'm sure it's there. <laughs> or I've written several letters that say, I cannot recommend this person enough to you. They will excel. They will dominate your graduate program. Uh, you need, you'd be a fool not to have them into your program. You determine what's in those letters. Look at our next section here. Paul constantly taught the Mosaic Law's principle of giving to support the gospel worker. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 14. Paul says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right or authority 
to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sow spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this, uh, the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed and ordained those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. You can't make it any more clear than that verse. God has ordained that those who live by the gospel, those who proclaim the gospel, we are ordained to get our living from the gospel, and that was established in the Old Covenant. So again, I just want to drive home the point that we've taught it a thousand times. We're not free from the Old Covenant. We are built upon it. These are principles established in the law. Paul quotes the Mosaic Law in establishing New Testament doctrine. All this new, all this new postmodern church doctrine about we're not free, we're, uh, we're not under the law, we're free from the law, it doesn't apply to us anymore, don't read anything out until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is ignorance, heresy, and blasphemy. I mean, Paul says, doesn't the law of Moses say the same thing? And they're supposed to nod their heads and say, well, I guess it does. I guess we are still committed to it. This passage establishes multiple Old Testament doctrines concerning the purpose and usage of tithes and offerings, this passage contains the following points. So let's look at these bullet points here. I've taken it from this passage. Point number one, ministers have an authority or a right to refrain from secular employment in order to preach. It benefits the church when the preacher can focus on the church. I've got a lot of bivocational preacher friends, and it's tough on them. I've got one friend who literally has three jobs and pastors because his church won't take care of him. And his pastor, we don't share the same pastor, but his pastor said, honestly, son, if it was me, I'd have quit and shut that church down a year ago. He said, come work for me, I'll put you on staff. You're worth more than that. Dr. Barclay told another preacher friend of mine when his church was not honoring him or taking care of him, he said, son, you're more important than that town. And Jesus Christ said, if that town won't receive you, leave. Dust your feet off, go someplace else. The gift in you is bigger than that town. It's not your fault if they can't see spirituality. (laughs) God will command preachers to abandon cities and churches. He said it over again, dust your feet off. If they be worthy, let your peace stay there. If not, dust your feet off. And that happens all over the world. And those regions are doomed and cursed because of it, because they don't recognize what God's doing. They don't recognize the gift and they don't take care of them. So ministers have a right to refrain from secular employment in order to preach. This mirrors the Levites' lack of land inheritance and dependence on the tithe. If you remember, we saw the Levites got no inheritance. God was their inheritance, but God commanded all the other 11 tribes to tithe and financially support the 12th tribe. The tithe of the 11 tribes supported the tribe of Levi. And then they tithed to the high priest because they weren't free from tithing. Soldiers, he goes on to make these points. You you look at three areas of life, he says here, employees, owners, and slaves. 
Soldiers, which are employees, they don't finance their own work. Did the soldiers buy their own guns? Did soldiers buy a ticket to get them to Iraq? No. And he says soldiers, uh, they don't employ themselves. They don't finance their own work. And he says at the same time, gospel ministers are soldiers. Vine dressers, that's the owner. They eat of their own labor. No man owns a vineyard and doesn't eat his own grapes. And at the same time, he's saying that preachers are owners. They own their ministry to speak. They own the work that they're over. They're responsible. And then shepherds, which were often in biblical times slaves. He's also saying we're slaves as well, or we're also shepherds or pastors. We drink milk of our own labor. So all these, they, they, the, the Corinthians would have appreciated these three areas of life and said, well, that's true, that's true. And he's using natural allegory to relate to them how the kingdom's supposed to work. Uh, the law forbids the muzzling of laboring oxen. And so Paul says, the human wisdom doesn't say this, also the Mosaic law does. Preventing the hardworking beast from eating as he labored was cruel, unreasonable, and selfish. Plus, you had to replace that ox quite free often. And we see that with a lot of churches. They starve their pastors to death. Now, you guys don't. You guys are a wonderful church. But some churches starve their pastor to death, and he has to leave and do something else. They suck the life out of them, chew them up, spit them out, and somebody else has to come in and, and take over. And God have mercy on that shepherd. He doesn't realize that flock's not worthy of a sheep overseer. Some shepherds, some flocks just aren't worthy. <laughs> they just don't respect the things of God. They, they're more of a club that doesn't want to be led. They want to steer things. Everybody else in their community has kicked them out, so they coagulate together. They call themselves a church, and it's pretty perverse. Spiritual things are worth more than natural wealth is what we also get from this passage. Spiritual things are worth a lot more than natural things. I think about you preach the word and it sets you free. You just saved you a lot of visits to the psychologist. We lay hands on you, you get healed of cancer. We just saved you a lot of copay. Amen. Dr. Sumrall tells a story. He was believing God. He was in Tibet in 1938. He was actually in China about to go into Tibet with uh, Howard Carter. He did not have the money he needed to make the trip. And he said, God, you told me to travel the world with this man and I don't have the money. But they were in China and actually they were in the Philippines and a woman from China came over and got healed in one of his services of cancer as she was a Chinese general's wife. And she was so thankful the next day at his hotel room was a chest full of money. He said, I'd never seen so much money in the whole wide world. He said, I lived off of it for the next year. He said, but she was healed and recognized that money couldn't have bought this. And her heart compelled her to bless the gospel worker who God used to heal her. And he said, and God answered my prayer and I had money to travel through Tibet with. I want to say, he said, it was, I, I, the number eight comes to mind. I think it was 8,000, equivalent $8,000, 1938, China, a chest full of money. Amen. Spiritual things are worth a lot more than money. Money always comes. You can't find spiritual things all the time. Money's everywhere. Spiritual things are not. So when you find spiritual things, you've got to be willing to exchange wealth for them. The Levites live by the altar they served. Why not the modern preacher? It's ordained by God that ministers live by the gospel tithes and offerings. And so Paul, in his first epistle of a church that was his own, Romans was not a church he had established. He hadn't even gotten there yet when he wrote the Roman epistle. But the Corinthians was one of his churches, and he establishes this very firmly in his doctrine. God has ordained that preachers live by the gospel. It's ordained by God. 
So those churches that resist that, and again, that's not you guys because you guys are a very generous church, but the churches resist that, resist God, and how can they ever be blessed? A lot of country churches are that way. A lot of hillbilly churches are that way. A lot of big churches are that way. There's a grace to give. We're continuing on with what the New Testament says about tithes and offerings. Paul goes on to reveal in Corinthians there is actually a grace to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Paul goes on to brag about here the Macedonians and how they had, this, they had worked out and pioneered this tremendous grace gift in their life. Like anything else in the kingdom, you can develop it and gain a momentum with it. Don't let anything in your life stay small and definitely don't ever go back. Giving is one of those things that as you serve God, it should always increase. Now there's seasons where it will really flow forth and then kind of drop back to a baseline. But your baseline in Christianity should always be slowly increasing from faith to faith, grace to grace, glory to glory. He says here that see that you increase and excel in this grace as well. God is telling us there's a grace to give. And if, he said the Macedonians have it and I want to see it in you. Paul could see that his Corinthian church was a little lacking in this area. And he said, the Macedonians have it. I want to see it developed in you. He said, you're good at this. 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 But you're not as good at this. Make sure you get good at this. This passage establishes the doctrine of a giving grace. So many of us, we've all been given a grace just by being born again. And that's something that comes natural or we should say even supernatural to you. But you can't neglect the things that don't come supernaturally to you. You have to develop them. Peter in Romans 12 gives a list of grace gifts. Hospitality, giving is listed in there. Teaching, exhortation, service, mercy. All of us have one of those working in our life. Some of you are given to hospitality. Some of you are very good at giving. Some of you are good at mercy. Some of you are very good at exhortation. But all of those are things we should all have working in our life. You can't just excel at the one thing you think you're good at. You've got to make up the difference in other areas. If you have grace, or if you have giving as a natural grace, great. Increase it more, but work on the other things too. But some churches are just stingy. Some people are just stingy. They'll give to everything but God. And Paul says, make sure you get good at giving to God. So let's look at these bullet points here. We should have a reputation. I draw these bullet points from this passage. Every church should have a reputation like the Macedonians. Paul said, I want you to know about the Macedonians because I want you to be like them. God, God wants to be able to brag about all of his churches being a generous church. So he actually, Paul was using a spiritual principle about provoking people with jealousy. He was basically saying, I told you how the Macedonians are better than you. That's, that caters to people's comp- competitive side, which is not always bad. Jesus Christ saved the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. He played on their ego. And he'll do it to you too. If you don't have any competition in you, you should get some. 
because it's good for you. There is an unhealthy competition, but there is a good competition. And you ought to be able to look at people and say, I want to be like them. Paul said, whatever you see in them, look at it for it in me and do it. You ought to be able to look at what's excelling in other people's lives and get good at it. Amen. We should have a reputation for generosity like the Macedonians. Point number two, this grace is not dependent on natural conditions. Paul said of the Macedonian grace to give, he said that uh, even in a great trial of affliction and severe trouble, that, that generosity kicked in and they gave way beyond expectation and even more so. And we don't know how they did it, but it was a supernatural thing and apparently it was joyful, otherwise it wouldn't have been bragged about. This grace provides for supernatural giving beyond what is possible. When you set your heart to give towards the gospel work or towards a missionary, God will cause the money to come from places you know not where. And you'll look back and say, how did we give so much in that season? And it'll be that supernatural grace gift that the Bible's so clear on working in your life. Giving is a privilege that aids God's people. The Macedonians begged Paul and his company that they could have the privilege of being partakers in the ministry to the saints. They said, please, Paul. I'm sure Paul didn't want to take their money because he knew what, what kind of hell and turmoil they were going through. And he says they, they begged him. He, he said, please. They urged us and pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. He had to, they had to compel Paul, take our offering. Take this money from us. I'm sure Paul said, you guys are going through so much. You need to take care of your, take it, Paul. Please take it. We want to be, this is a privilege and an honor for us to be able to be a partaker in this service to the body of Christ. Giving requires that you first be given to the Lord. And that's why a lot of Christians don't give anything to the Lord. They've never given themselves to the Lord. When you give your heart to that girl or that boy you fall in love with, your money goes after it. But when you take your heart away from that boyfriend and that girlfriend or that husband or wife or even your kids, when your heart retracts from your kids, your money comes back with you. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Giving requires that you first be given to the Lord, then your spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership always has a vision that needs financing. If you trust your spiritual leadership, you don't have money putting, uh, you don't mind putting your money in that direction. Therefore, non-givers are probably not submitted to God or their leadership. They lack the vision of the local house. We got to make sure that we give ourselves to the Lord first and we give ourselves to our spiritual leadership. You know, for me, I, I give myself to the Lord and then my pastor, Dr. Barclay in Michigan, I have his vision. And anytime he needs money, we send him money to help with whatever project is coming up next so we can get in on what he's doing because he's not just in our life to help us. We're in his life to help him. And if you can see that about the local church or even the local pastor, that they're not just in your life to help you, but you're in his life to help him, it becomes a pretty easy exchange. It's symbiotic, not parasitic. Welfare is a bunch of parasites sucking the life out of health and healthy people. Symbiosis is two healthy people mutually benefiting each other with gifts they have that lack in the others. We understand that from like third grade biology and ticks and chiggers. I've still got chigger bites from two weeks ago. I hate chiggers. I would rather be covered in ticks than chiggers because ticks you can pull off and chiggers are still talking to you two and three weeks later. Chiggers are parasites too. (laughs) Some Christians are chiggers. They depart and you're still scratching six months after they leave the body. Amen. Don't be a chigger. 
Let's see, where are we at? Point number down there somewhere on the list. We are all commanded to excel in the giving grace. Now, now that looks different for everybody. For some people, it's, it's increasing from a dollar a week to two dollars a week. Some Christians, they increase from 10,000 a month to 20,000 a month in their giving. Everybody's different in their place that they're at, in the amount of wealth that God's given them. Remember the parable of the stewards? To one, God gave one. To one, he gave three. To one, he gave five, according to their several ability. What that says is God doesn't see everybody as equal. That doesn't fly in today's political culture. We are not all equal. Now, in the spirit, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free. But our abilities are very different. And if God gives one five, one three, and one one based on their ability, he doesn't see us as equal. And God gives us income and wealth and abilities as it's pleased him. And some of us are better at making money than others. And some of us are are better at manual labor than others. And some of us are better at cerebral labor than others. But according to what God's given us, we excel in the giving grace. Let me have a little bit of response. I know it's just Sunday school, but this lets me know you're not still asleep. My dad, when he used to fall asleep on the couch, I said, Dad, are you, you sleeping? He said, no, son. I'm checking my eyelids for holes. Some of you, I think, are checking your eyelids for holes. Our giving should provoke others to generosity. And again, this lesson is looking at what the New Testament teaches us about giving. We should aim to set an example with our lifestyle of giving. 2 Corinthians 9.2 in the NIV. For I know your eagerness to help by giving, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year in Achaia, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them. Most of them. Some people you can't stir at all. You know, some, some folks, you could put a bomb under their chair and you wouldn't wake them up spiritually. He said, it, uh, the, the NIV says, it has stirred most of them to action. Our testimony is meant to stir people to action, whether it's a testimony of evangelism, a testimony of mercy, a testimony of forgiveness, a testimony of holiness, or in this case, a testimony of giving. People ought to see our lifestyle of giving and it stir them to action. And and your giving can even convict people of stinginess. We don't want to be the one that's convicted. We want to be the one whose lifestyle does the convicting. So we got a couple bullet points from this. We should have an eager heart to give towards the gospel. The Corinthians, they had this eager heart. He wanted to finish this grace in their life, but they had this eager, willing heart. And God wants us to have that eager heart. You know... That's one of the few things he bragged about on the Corinthians. They had a lot of issues. The Corinthian epistles have more rebukes than any of the other epistles. But he said, you guys are eager to give. In that regard, the Corinthian church is better than a lot of American churches. Because they were eager to give. And that eagerness stirred a lot of other people to action. Point number two, generosity is a braggable offense. It's praiseworthy to be generous. I love it when uh, I do my taxes. I used to do it. I don't do them anymore. Uh, somebody else helps us with them, but I would do it on um, one of the digital things and I'd always enter my tax returns for my giving and they would always say, is this correct? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. I gave that much. I like it when the IRS scratches their head. I like it when you can do the, you know, the presidential candidates and whatnot, they usually release their taxes and they tell you how much they gave and it's usually pretty shameful even though they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The politicians who make money off of being politicians... And I always like to look and see I gave a much larger percentage of mine than than the crooked politician that made $250 million last year. I like that. Generosity is a braggable offense. It's good to be generous. 
Point number three, our giving should be enthusiastic. Yeah, we need to be enthusiastic in our giving. And the fourth point is our enthusiasm will stir others to action. So again, uh, your attitude is contagious. And if you're excited about giving, I remember being in Nigeria and we, in Nigeria, they dance when they give. They line up and we learned that from Pastor Okwokwo and his church and they, they have their offering and they shake it and the trumpets play and the music and they're excited to come down front and they had this little box that said tithe on it and they, they made a big joyful occasion out of it and that convicted me. I thought that's how it should be and you know some of these folks had nothing but two mites in their hand, two pennies, two shekels and these ladies would come down dancing in their regal clothing and just joyful before the Lord. And it was, it was enthusiastic. And I remember sitting there going, that's what I want to do in my church. I want us to come down front, joyful, music playing. I want it to be exciting. I want, I want it to be a, an enthusiastic occasion. So they, they fulfilled the role of the Corinthians and us, Jesus Ambassadors Assembly in Ikarikpene, Nigeria. So we've adapted some of their technique here. Reaping like we've sown. Here's another thing the New Testament teaches. Again, we're doing kind of a topical study, lots to cover here. But I only have one more lesson, and I can't do it on this, so we've got to cover it all this, this Sunday morning. 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, who, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So that really means you need to shut off Christian television and not give them a dime, because everything on Christian television is compulsion. It's manipulation, it's a bunch of gimmicks and a lot of familiar spirits. For God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your, us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. That's a powerful passage of verses. I believe that's the New American Standard there. And I chose that because it just brings out some things in modern English. All of this is, is a context of offering. And when you give, you only reap what you give. You don't reap what you keep. That's pretty simple. So if you give a lot, you reap a lot. If you give a little, you reap a little. Giving is called sowing. That's established in the book of Genesis, and it runs all the way through to the New Testament. We reap like we sow. So if you're stingy, you reap stingy. If you're generous, you reap generous. If you're sorrowful, you reap sorrowful. If you reap joyful... If you sow joyful, you reap joyful. I've noticed that when you get excited to give, that's sowing, you're excited to reap, which is work. So how you give uh, in offerings will affect your attitude on the job. If you're excited to give part of your paycheck to the Lord on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, special conferences, you'll be excited to go back to work because that's where you reap. If you keep in mind, reaping, sowing is the easy part in agriculture. Sowing is the easy part. You just stick a seed in the ground. Everything you have to do to reap is the hard part. Water, cultivate, weed, build a scarecrow, fertilize, pesticide, herbicide, insecticide, and then harvest time. And that's even harder. So we think 
it will, the sewing is the easy part for the gimmick preacher because he takes the stuff. He never teaches how to actually harvest, which means you go get a job. You believe God. You, you grow your business. You, you believe God for favor. You work harder than anybody on your job, so they give you all the promotions. If you'll work harder than anybody on the job, all the promotions will have to come to you. That's harvest time. We, we, we recorded a whole CD on biblical truth behind seed time and harvest because we've been taught it just comes to you magically, which is not the truth. But if a magical check appeared to you, where did the guy that wrote the magical check get the money from? Did a magical check come to him or did he go work for it? He went and worked for it. You got to go work for it. All right. We control our harvest. Generous sowing produces a generous, generous harvest. Point number three, God wants us to decide in our heart what to give. That way we can be cheerful about the gift. If somebody else tells you it has to be 69.95 because of Isaiah 69 verse 95, uh, that's not cheerful. That's a gimmick. And now you're under superstition. And that's a familiar spirit. A bulk of the fundraising on Christian television involves demons. I'm telling you straight truth. A bulk of the fundraising on Christian television involves familiar spirits. Gimmicks, hype, superstition, and fear. A bulk of it. Not all of it, but I'd say a passing letter grade of it. Because it's all about gimmicks. It's all about tricks. And most of your famous and your, your favorite Christian preachers, when they go on Christian television stations and networks, in their contract, they have to agree to help do fundraising. Because the folks that run Christian television stations know they're not liked, but their favorite preacher is. And though you won't give to the television station, you'll give to your favorite brother, sister, so-and-so. It's business. And it's corrupt. All right, I guess you're checking for holes in your eyelids again. That was some pretty good news information there for you so you don't get ripped off by Christian television. I worked the phone lines at a Christian television station. I saw behind the scenes and I lost all respect. And I only did it because my Bible school required it of me. And I bit my tongue in a lot of meetings because I thought, y'all are corrupt. And brother so-and-so would roll over in his grave and cast the devil out of every one of you if he didn't curse you to hell first. That's why I have zero respect for Christian television. (laughs) All right, there might be one or two new ones out there that are good, but all the old ones are corrupt. Don't let anyone compel you, you to give. This will produce a reluctance to do so. God's will is for us to abound. Now, this is what struck me this passage. This passage contains the following powerful terms in relation to our giving. And I underlined them all in the previous scripture. Reap generously, generously. Bless you abundantly. All that you need, you will abound, increase, enlarge, enrich, generous in generosity. That's a lot of bigger. That's a lot of promotion. That's a lot of increase. And those terms are used over and over again in that passage as an encouragement and an exhortation to us not to fear giving when the Lord tells us to give or when we know we need to. Giving is an act of obedience. This is something also I've never seen before. Giving is an act of obedience that demonstrates and confirms our confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the last sentence of the scripture we wrote there. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. He's saying there that giving is an act of obedience that accompanies our confession of Christ. If you're not giving, you're a disobedient Christian. And to confess the gospel of Christ and never give... You, you, you basically, you're a cheap talk. 
The previous part says, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Giving proves your Christianity. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. When we give, we prove that we're born again. We prove that we believe in this gospel. We prove that it has done a work in our life. And we prove that we believe in it enough to invest in it. Amen. If you had a free set of $10,000 to invest in Apple 20 years ago, you would do it because you believe in it and you know what the stock would do. Giving proves you have faith in the gospel and its reward system in heaven and in this life. Next section, stinginess produces an inferior church. A stingy church will be inferior to generous churches. Now again, I just write this. We are a very generous church. Every year we give our state of the ministry address and we go through the finances and, and this church is all, has always increased. Every year we've pastored, it's increased financially and our, our church giving away has always increased. I think last year we gave away almost 30% of our income as a church and yet every project was taken care of. I know churches that don't even give away 10% of what they receive. That's a stingy church and they always complain about what they don't have. We have never lacked for any project around here. So I didn't write this for our benefit, but it might benefit you. I wrote this because it's Bible, and we need to keep that doctrine being established. 2 Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul Paul speaking again, For what is it wherein you were inferior or lesser to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. That word wrong is act of unrighteousness. Now think about that. Paul had to ask for forgiveness for committing an act of unrighteousness against his own church. The Corinthians were very generous to give to anybody, just not Paul. They were happy to give to the Jerusalem church, the Antioch church, wherever saints were in need. They were very eager to give. They just didn't want to support Paul, which go figure. Every church is a little goofy. That's one of their goofies. So due to internal complaining, external slander, inherent stinginess, and challenges to Paul's own apostleship, Paul chose to forego receiving offerings from the Corinthian church, though he had already proven he had every right to. Paul recognized that asking the Corinthians to support him financially had the potential to hurt the short-term preaching of the gospel, so he withheld his right. However, in doing so, he inadvertently caused the Corinthian church to become an inferior church. Any church that does not support their pastor will be in a spiritually inferior church. Uh, when I first took over this church, I did not receive an, an income from it. I worked at the zinc mine and was paid well, and I refused to take any offering because we were rebuilding the church after Pastor Vaughn's death. And so it was in the spring of that year, I've been pastoring six or eight months, and me and Miss Amy and Marlon were at dinner with Pastor Jerry. Were you there, Miss Patty? Was it just, I think it was just your husband. But Marlon was there, and so Pastor Jerry said, uh, you receiving an offering from that church yet, son? I said, no, why not? And I said, because I don't want to be a burden to him. And, and he, he pointed this scripture out to me. I didn't even know it was in there. He kicked, uh, actually, he said, he said, you're making your church inferior by not being a burden to them. And Marlon kicked me under the table because he'd been talking to me about receiving an offering from the church. And I look at Marlon, I have to tell Marlon to shut up a lot because he's mouthy in trying to help me. Uh, so he kicked me under the table. I remember we, we were at uh, uh, Bennigan's. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it was Applebee's. And he, uh, I had two witnesses. And so from that point forward, I, I began to receive a, a slight compensation. It was, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month or something. To be a burden to this church and to cause it to rise out of inferiority. It's a powerful word. 
It's counterintuitive to the American mindset, but Paul said by the Holy Ghost, I made you inferior by not being a burden to you. Please forgive me this act of unrighteousness. However, in doing so, he caused them to become an inferior church. This was Paul's doing. It wasn't the Holy Ghost. It was Paul's doing. He had to repent of it. His decision had harmed the Corinthian believers. This was an unrighteous act that he had uh, to repent of. So stinginess will make you inferior as a believer and as a church. And that's why we don't mind to be a burden. It's proper. I don't mind. Uh, I support my pastor financially. I don't want to be an inferior son in the faith or minister. I take care of my pastor as well. Giving and receiving. Paul goes on to further establish some things. I got to move. Let's see if I can do page and a half in seven minutes. Listen fast. Check your, your eyes for holes later. And we'll get through this. The epistles further reveal a side to biblical giving that was perhaps not fully revealed in the Old Testament. The twofold nature of giving and receiving. It's not just always giving, giving, giving. There's a receiving aspect to it as well. Philippians 4, 5 through 17, 15 through 17. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So he reveals here there's a giving and a receiving. There's a giving to the minister and there's a receiving of a profit to your account, an increase, a fruit of righteousness. This passage is very telling. There is something, to, there's, uh, there's something more to receiving uh, when giving or there's something to receive when giving. You don't just give, you should expect a spiritual gift in return. Philippians 1.7, Paul calls the Philippians partakers or partners with and of his grace. So that's part of what you receive when you give. You receive the grace that's on the ministry you're giving to. You receive part of the grace of what's on the ministry you're giving to. Paul revealed that. And that word there, partake, is the word partner. We understand ministry partner. We get that concept. And so to that end, I say, we have to be careful who we give to because we'll start partaking of them. In fact, my pastor, Dr. Barclay, has really been hitting that emphasis lately that if you're not careful, you will reap where you sow. And if you sow into corrupt preachers and if you sow, sow into corrupt organizations, you reap part of that corruption because your money is your endorsement. When giving, I'm not talking about exchange of service because what about everything's owned by the homosexuals or everything supports Planned Parenthood? Look, I, there's a company I buy luggage from and they are very pro-LGBT. I, I'm kind of a, I buy a lot of stuff from them. I just bought two more suitcases this week from them. And I like to write reviews and I, I say, your, God, your suitcase helped me preach the gospel in Africa. Thank you so much for such a high quality article of luggage. It has been with me to Africa now seven times. I've preached the gospel, declared God's word, and cast out devils. Thank you for aiding the gospel. I write reviews like that because I know it bugs them. I need their goods though. So I don't have a problem financing a homosexual if they have a business that takes care of me. Because Paul said, if that's the case, you've got to leave the world. I just saw this week that the top 25 companies that support Planned Parenthood, and you deal with every one of them on a daily basis, Johnson & Johnson, most of your restaurants, Bank of America. Somebody said Starbucks. Well, Starbucks is like 24 on the list. Everything I deal with everything else was a top 10. Your motor companies, just part of the day we live in, but take their services and preach the gospel with it. 
That's, that's how you do, deal with your conscience in this thing. Got to keep moving. Giving as a sweet aroma, Philippians 4.18, but I have all and abound. I'm full, having received of Epaphroditus, the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. The picture painted by Paul here is one of, the, of Old Testament animal sacrifices being burned on the altar of God. This confirms that the source of the sweet aroma God is looking for is not from the natural offering. It's not the goat being burned or the red heifer. It's not from the incense in the actual tabernacle. It's, it is not the cash gift, but what he's looking for is the heart behind the gift. The, our heart in giving is what makes a gift or an offering a sweet-smelling aroma. It doesn't matter how beautiful the incense could have been under the Old Testament. If the heart was not right, God did not smell it, and it, he rejected it. If our heart is right, our financial giving will produce the same smell as Noah's post-flood burnt offering. That's the first time the Bible mentions a sweet-smelling odor to God is when Moses made a sacrifice after coming off the ark. Giving as the supply qualified. This is critical. Financially supporting the gospel qualifies you to receive your supply from God. He doesn't just take care of everybody. Just because you're his kid doesn't mean he's going to take care of you. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You have to look at the previous two sections that we've already covered, Philippians 4, 15 through 18. This often quoted verse follows after Paul brags on the Philippians' generosity. This verse is the conclusion to a big section on bragging about generosity. The promise of having one's needs supplied by God is contingent upon the believer first supplying God's needs. We reap what we sow. So you only get to claim that verse if you've been giving to God first and foremost. Giving as a demonstration of honor. The common theme over and over again in the epistles is that the church is to provide the natural needs of the gospel ministers. This is done through tithes and offerings. Timothy reveals that supplying the preacher's need, though, is an act of honor. We don't just do it out of obligation. We do it to honor the preachers for the lifestyle and sacrifice and hard work they do. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. This passage quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, 1 Corinthians 9, 9, also quoting Deuteronomy 25, 4, and Jesus Christ in Luke 10, 7. Luke 10, 7, Jesus Christ said, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Jesus Christ further established that the preacher lives by the gospel. Building upon this established doctrine, Paul adds the gospel minister is worthy of double honor. The first honor is respect for their office. The second is a financial gift for their support. It's one thing to respect the office. I respect the president's office. I have given this current president nothing. I don't give him double honor. I honor his office, but he ain't getting any of my money. But now double honor is you you respect the office and you support them. All commentaries agree this honor is a reference to the remuneration for services rendered or financial support. So review, and this lesson's gone a little long, but you're listening so well and checking your eyelids simultaneously. (laughs) We can clearly see the New Testament doctrine confirms and solidifies the Old Testament giving doctrines. We have observed the following. Giving in the New Testament is first and foremost to support the gospel minister. Obviously, besides honoring God, we understand that. But the usage of the gift is to supply the need of the gospel minister. Like the Levites, the New Testament minister has the right to refrain from natural employment and be supported by the church. There is a supernatural grace to give, and this grace can be developed, and every one of us should. 
God wants our giving to be willful and joyful. Our giving should be provocative, provoking others to do better. Not provocative in some kind of perverse way, but provocative just means it provokes people. Giving allows God to bless us in a greater way. Stinginess produces an inferior Christianity and an inferior church. Giving qualifies us for God's abundant supply, and giving is a demonstration of honor. Amen. So those are the main major passages on tithes and offerings and giving in the New Testament. And I think we agree with all of it. We understand all of it. And it further just establishes we got to be giving. You wouldn't believe how many pastors refuse to talk about tithes and offerings and giving. I just, it shocks me. They don't realize they're robbing their people of God's blessing. If you don't teach people to obey God, they will not receive God's best. It's like you got to teach your kids to submit to the teachers so they can have the teachers best. You got to teach your kids how to, oh, how to work life so life works for them. Same with this gospel. God is a giver and he wants us to be just like him. Amen on that. Father, we thank you for these lessons. May we be greater givers and receive. May we be greater receivers and receive everything you have for us. Speak to us about our giving and that aspect of our relationship with you. We trust you, Lord. We thank you for supplying our needs. Bless all the future listeners of these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.